All right, church, you guys are welcome to have a seat. It's just welcome all around, all right? Go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, my name is Doug, and I am the pastor here at uh, Parkview East. It's a joy to be able to be with you this morning. And um, if you're just joining us or you haven't been here for a while, we just recently finished up walking through the book of Acts, and we are sort of in a brief sermon series right now where we are um, learning about what it means to be a disciple. More specifically, sort of what is the definition of a whole disciple? We're, we want to see, one of the things that we long to see happen here at Parkview is that the whole church would help form whole disciples for the good of all people and for the glory of God. That's what we're all about here at Parkview. And so in order to sort of understand what that means for us, and it really, you have to start by what is a definition? What is it that we long to see produced and formed here through the church? The answer is we wanna see disciples, whole disciples. So if you remember last week, I'll just share the definition with you real quick. What is a disciple? We'll just play our cards right away at the top, okay? A disciple is a forgiven child of God who is taking the next step to learn Jesus, love Jesus, and to live Jesus. Now, if you were here last week, what you'll notice, I'll just, for, by way of review, what you'll notice in that definition is really there's two parts. There's what a disciple is, a forgiven child of God, and then there's what a disciple does, takes the next step to learn, love, and live Jesus. Okay, that's the activity of a disciple. Now, last week, we spent the whole time together just focusing on that first part, who a disciple is. And this is so crucial. It's so crucial for us to understand that last week, the whole, the whole message was that being comes before doing. Now, we are really good at Christians, as Christians, as flipping those two things around, thinking that it is our activity, it's what we do for Jesus that defines who we are in Jesus. And we have to make sure that as we talk about what it means to follow Jesus, that we don't get it twisted, that we do not flip those two things around, that we see that Matthew 11, when Jesus says, come to me, actually comes 17 chapters before Matthew 28, where he says, go for me, okay? It is who we are that determines what we do. We can never miss that. We can never miss that. Being comes before doing. So last week, we zoomed in on that first part of the definition. Who are we as disciples? Now this week, we're gonna shift focus and we're gonna look at, for the next couple of weeks, the second half of that definition. We're gonna turn our attention towards what it is that a disciple does? What is her activity? What is his behavior? What is the look of a disciple? Now, even as we do this, what you'll notice, today's message and in a couple of weeks ahead, that, you will, that, that, that these aspects of discipleship are inseparable, who a disciple is and what one does. They're inseparable, and we'll see that sort of over and over and over again. Now, last week, if the question that we were sort of asking is, how do I know I'm a disciple. Really, you could look back at last week's message and you could say it was all an answer to that question. The question that we're answering this week is, when others look at me, how do they know that I'm a disciple? What are sort of the defining features or characteristics that you will see in the life of a follower of Jesus? Now, we've used sort of three words to help us remember this. They all start with the letter L, so you have no excuse to forget but how could you sum up the activity, the behavior, the look of a disciple? You could sum, up, sum it up with these three words. Someone who lives, learns Jesus, 
who loves Jesus and someone who lives Jesus, okay? That's the look of a disciple. Now this week, our unique focus, our specific focus is we're gonna look specifically at love, loving Jesus. That's my task this morning. Now, just so you know, we're not going sort of sequentially here, live, love, or sorry, learn, love, and live. I'm kind of diving into the middle. It's because next week, whoever's preaching at Central, I believe, is gonna be here talking about the other one, and I'll be there talking about this, all right? So that's kind of why it may seem a little out of order. That's the plan, all right? So in order to help us think through this idea of a disciple loving Jesus, we're gonna go to a place in the Bible that maybe you would not suspect, It is John chapter 21. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to take them out, open them up. There's some in front of you or the words will be on the screen. But I'm gonna read verses one through 19 of this really phenomenal story. This is a fantastic story. And I'll just tell you for the last probably five or so years, this story has been one that I have, has, has just sort of perplexed me on some level and fascinated me on another. It is a beautiful story. In fact, I'm so fascinated by this. This is the second time I've preached this passage in the last two years. Now, what we're not gonna do this morning is I'm not gonna do just a straight exposition of the passage. If you want, if you're thinking to yourself, why is this pastor not just walking through this passage, just structurally showing us what the big idea of it is? It's because I did that two years ago. And if you're really interested in it, you can listen to that, okay? It was almost exactly two years ago. It was Mother's Day of 2021, all right? So John 21, we're gonna, we're gonna use this story And uh, we're going to use it to help us think about what does it mean to love Jesus. I'm going to read it from verse 1 through 19. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it. Now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from land, but about 100 yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and and so with the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, 
do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said it the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. And when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Let's pray. Father God, as we just consider your word this morning, just as it comes to us, Lord, we recognize that your word is eternal and that it is true. Lord, and that you are a God who speaks and you have something to say. Lord, I suspect that it is precisely what we as your people need to hear this morning. So I pray you'd be clear Help me to be faithful and help your word as it goes out, Lord, to encourage, to comfort, to shape us into the people that you have made us to be. We ask these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. A couple years ago, my family moved into a different house. And when we got this house, there was a number of trees on the property. And the individual who sold us the house spent just about a half an hour walking around sort of identifying the different trees. One of the big trees in our front yard is a ginkgo tree. It is, to be sure, one of the most unusual species of trees I've ever encountered. It's strange. It's very strange. One of the things that makes it so strange is that it has these sort of fan-like leaves. And in the fall... Uh, unlike other leaves, I have sort of two contrasting trees in my yard, a pin oak and a ginkgo, both massive and both massively annoying in different ways. The ginkgo, well, let's start with the pin oak. The pin oak, if you have one of those in your property, you know that it drops its leaves all the way up through, I would say, maybe February. It's ridiculous, all right? It's ridiculous, just constantly slow dropping of leaves spread out around like four months, super annoying, the other tree, the ginkgo, is the complete opposite. The ginkgo tree drops all of its leaves in one day. In one day. You, I will leave for work. This, last year was the first year that I was able to actually see it falling. My wife texted me, and I raced home real quick. I was on the way to a meeting, and I just had to see it. It's like, it's like a, just a snow shower of leaves. It's unbelievable. In one day, you could go to work, full of leaves on the way home. They're off. And not just this ginkgo, not just my ginkgo. Every ginkgo in town. It seems like, I think, just about every ginkgo that same day will drop its leaves. It's really a fascinating tree. So when I heard that it was a ginkgo tree, knew a little bit about a ginkgo tree, I knew two things. One, the way it drops its leaves. Fascinating. I was excited. This is cool. But then there's a question that comes to my mind. What kind of ginkgo is it? Is it a male ginkgo or is it a female ginkgo? How do you tell the difference? A female ginkgo bears a little kind of fruit, a berry. I don't know what it is. But my first introduction into the ginkgo world 
was as a student at the University of Iowa. There are ginkgos all around Iowa City. They're not native to Iowa. I think they were planted probably in the 70s. But female ginkgo trees don't just drop leaves. They drop their fruit. And when they drop their fruit, they are perhaps the most rancid smelling thing you've ever smelled. If you're around campus and there's still ginkgos, I don't know if they are or not, but it smells like vomit and it's not a joke. How do you tell the difference between a male ginkgo and a female ginkgo? Male doesn't have fruit. The female loads of vomit smelling fruit. It's really important to tell the difference. What kind of tree do I have? Does it have vomit fruit on it or not? That will tell me what kind of ginkgo I have. For the Christian, there are distinguishing marks. There are things that are present in a Christian's life that you would expect to see. There are parts of the way that they live their life, just the way they conduct themselves that are different, they are unique, and they are distinguishing marks that separate Christians from other people. Last week, the question was, how do I know that I'm a Christian? Do I belong to the family of God? Am I a forgiven sinner who's been welcomed into the family of God? That's how I know. Now the question is, how do others know that you are a Christian? What are the distinguishing marks? I think as you read the New Testament, you begin to learn, well, the whole Bible, you begin to learn that one of the primary distinguishing marks of a follower of Jesus, one of the ways that people can look at you and know you follow Jesus is whether or not you are a person of love. Are you a person who's marked by love? That's the argument today. So I wanna try to argue that as Christians, we are to be people who are marked, who are able to be recognized because we love. Now, sort of three points as we look at our text this morning, and this is really more of a, the text is more of a, a sort of launching us into this topic. The first thing that we're gonna see about being a person of love, as we look at these different traits, learn, love, and live, we're gonna take sort of three sort of different perspectives. There's sort of an, an upward aspect to this feature, this mark. There's an inward perspective, and then there's an outward. And I think we see all three at play in this text this morning in John chapter 21. So the first thing that we notice about sort of loving, the, the love that marks us as a people, is that we are, as we direct it upward, supposed to be a people who have a passion for Christ above all else. What does it mean to be a person of love, a follower of Jesus? It means that you have a passion for Christ above all else. Disciples of Jesus are motivated at their deepest level of who they are to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. 
You know, maybe we've heard the phrase before that if you're a follower of Jesus, it's a common sort of catchy phrase of Christianity. It is not a religion, rather it is a relationship. That sort of phrase comes from an understanding that our, our religion, our following of Jesus is one that is, involves on a very deep level loving Jesus and being loved by Jesus. A true disciple possesses a longing within them for a deeper intimacy with Jesus, a longing uh, for the love of God through Christ to become not a fact committed to memory, but a lived reality that is recognizable in their life. It's experienced daily. They enjoy a relationship that's built on a foundation of mutual and supernatural love. Disciples of Jesus should continually find themselves asking God for a deeper sense of who he is. And when they get a taste, when they get a glimpse of him and his unmatched, all-satisfying glory, two things happen simultaneously. One, the things of this earth grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. And two, they find themselves wanting more more of him specifically. Now, in John 21, I believe this is precisely what Jesus is after in this unusual but very special interaction he has with the disciple Peter. I think this is precisely what's on his mind. This is why he asks Peter this simple question. Do you love me? This is what Jesus wants to know about Peter. Does Peter love him? This is the first, the last, and the most fundamental question in Christian discipleship. Do you love Jesus? Now, John, when he writes his book, this is, and tells the story of Jesus, this is where John starts in John chapter one. You remember the story of John the Baptist, how he directs the disciples to Jesus and that they should begin to follow him. And as, as these individuals leave John the Baptist and they start to follow Jesus, Jesus turns around dead in his tracks and he asks them a question. What are you seeking? In other words, what do you want? This is the question that Jesus poses at the very beginning of the Gospel of John. It's the question that lays underneath every question that he asks of them, every demand that he places on them throughout their journey. It it finds its beginning in how they answer this question. And here at the end of the gospel, during the restoration, the recommissioning of his deeply loved and deeply flawed disciple, this is right where Jesus goes. Do you love me? What do you want in this world more than anything else, Peter? Jesus is after Peter's heart. And this question exposes not just what's in his heart, but also who he is as a person. See, wants, longings, our loves are at the very core of who we are as human beings. And the idea is that what's in our heart, that our behaviors, our activity, our, our actions flow from what is in the heart. Scripture identifies the heart as the epicenter of the human person. That's why in Proverbs, we're commanded to keep our heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. 
So you see, Jesus is not interested in being a person just that Peter knows about. That he has maybe a bunch of teachings or facts deposited in his head, lodged in his memory. Rather, Jesus wants into Peter's heart. That's what he's after. But even more than that, he wants into the center of his heart. The very center. He has zero interest in playing second fiddle, riding shotgun, or coming off the bench. Rather, he wants Peter to love him passionately above all else. That's what he's after. And here's the deal. As a story in this, come across a story in John chapter one, I think Peter is struggling with this very question before it is asked. Now, if you remember the setting, Peter sitting around breakfast with Jesus, and as they come off the boat, we're told that there's already fish on the fire, and then they add some of their own fish to the fire, and Jesus is there waiting with him, and so there's this scene with the fish kind of all around them. They're, they're on the shore. There's a net bursting forth with 153 fish. They just got done fishing, and Jesus asks Peter, do you love me more than these. Now, if you're reading your Bible, you're probably asking yourself, what are these? Do you love me? Doesn't just say, do you love me? He says, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Who are these? I think these are fish. That's what I think. There's a number of different arguments and ideas of what these are, but I think what Jesus is asking Peter is do you love me not just more than these fish, but do you love me more? You know, know, Peter was a fisherman. This is what he did. And in that time and age, this is what you do, kind of defined who you were as a person. And now the resurrected Christ comes back to Peter, sets the table for him, and he has a question for him. See, here's, here's what's interesting. Remember, Peter dropped the ball on Jesus totally failed him. And Jesus has come back from the dead. Now, if you were to read through the Gospel of John and you get to John 20, you would think John 20 is a great way to end the book. We see the resurrection of Jesus. We see the appearance to the disciples. At the very end of John 20, you see that there's this wonderful purpose statement of why John wrote the Gospel of John. And in my my Bible, actually, the page ends there. And so if I'm just reading this Reading the Bible, I would expect to turn and to instantly see Acts chapter one. That's what I would expect, but I don't. I see John chapter 21. Jesus comes back to Peter and what he ultimately wants to know from Peter. See, see Peter has gone back to fishing at the beginning of the scene. There he is, 21, a guy who completely failed Jesus, sitting there with his disciples saying, I'm going fishing. I think Jesus wants to make sure that Peter doesn't get it twisted. That he is no longer a fisherman. That's not his identity. It's not who he is. He is a forgiven child of God. Do you love me more than these? It's a really great question. 
And I think it's what Jesus wants from all of us, every single one of us. If you're a follower of Jesus, what Jesus wants to know from each and every single one. Now, I don't know what these are for you. For Peter, it was a way of life marked by fishing. But I think every single one of us is tempted to find our identity in something that even we do for Jesus rather than who we are in Jesus. He wants to be at the very center of our heart. What does he want from us? He wants us to be a people who, who grow increasingly in our admiration and our affection for Jesus above all else. See him as all satisfying. Find our delight and our joy in Jesus first and foremost. Jesus wants to be number one. He wants us to love him passionately above all else. Now, secondly, what else does it mean to love Jesus? Not just do we have a love for him passionately above all else, but it also means that we as people have a heart of humble repentance. What is the inward sort of response to loving Jesus? Well, Aiden just kind of walked us through it a little bit as, he was, as we were worshiping in song. The more one spends time with God, the more one grows increasingly aware of how precisely unlike God we are, okay? So if you do a really good job of movement number one, placing Jesus above all else, as you stare at the face of who Jesus is, sort of one of the next moves is beginning to recognize how you as a person, as a sinner, just don't measure up. You don't measure up. We see this constantly throughout the Bible. It's what happened to Job when he waited for the voice of God and, and when God showed himself to Job, Job said, I abhor myself. I repent in dust and ashes. I've spoken once. I will speak no more. I will take my hand and put it upon my mouth. It's what Isaiah does in chapter six with this vision that he has from the Lord. His response is, woe is me, for I am lost or I am undone. The prophet Habakkuk, on and on we could go. An encounter with the risen Christ causes us to think honestly about ourselves and to see how we just don't measure up. And then the question should become, what do I do with this discovery? What do I do with this discovery? How unlike God I am, what do I do with it? Areas of my life that don't measure up, when I'm repeatedly dropping the ball, when sin catches up to me, when my stench is no longer something that I can endure, it can't be explained away or covered up, what do I do? The answer is repent. It's repent. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith is a wonderful, um, Pastor Wade was reflecting on this with me uh, this week, and uh, just a good reminder of what repentance is, and I think it gives us maybe, for me, a different angle of what I think when I think about repentance. So what it says, repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. The doctrine, wherefore, is to be preached by every minister of the gospel, as well as that of faith in Christ. The part that stands out to me is that repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. It's a gift. It's the gift of the gospel. It comes from God. It's a gift from Jesus himself offered to sinful men and women like you and me who've had enough of themselves and recognize their total need for help. It's an act of grace. It's an act of grace that marks the beginning of your journey with Jesus, and it's an act of grace that marks every step along the way. 
It's Martin Luther at the very beginning of his 95 thesis who said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be that of repentance. Repentance is, one Puritan says, a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. True repentance is hope-inspired and unmatched grace. Through it, Jesus is restoring us, you and me, back to his image. We see it here in chapter 21, I think in verse seven, it's really a wonderful picture of what repentance looks like. As they're on the boat out at sea, and they begin to recognize that there's this other individual and they get this huge haul. And when sort of the, when the light comes on and they realize that it's the Lord Jesus, what's Peter's response? In verse seven, throws himself into the sea. Throws himself directly into the sea. Can you imagine Peter being in his position? Probably just being inwardly destroyed by guilt and shame. The last words that he would have spoken to our Lord and Jesus, our Lord and Savior Jesus, would have been words of denial and betrayal. And then his friend, his Lord, his Savior is murdered. And Jesus, or Peter is probably thinking to himself, that's my chance. I, there's no way I'm gonna make up for that. The last words that Jesus hears me saying is words of I don't know him, words of distance. Peter's thinking he completely blew it. Can you imagine how guilt and shame would have just been eating away at him? And then when he sees, it's not over. Those weren't the last words that Jesus will hear me say. He's alive. The relief, the possibility the newness of an opportunity throws himself into the water. Nothing's gonna stop him from getting to Jesus. And when he gets to Jesus, how does Jesus respond? Did Jesus see Peter throwing himself recklessly into the sea and say, come on now, Peter, you're taking yourself far too seriously. Not that big of a deal. Don't have such a preoccupation with your sin. Don't be so neurotic. Got a little guilt hang up, get over it. I didn't do that. Nor did Jesus look at his servant dripping wet on the beach and say, suffer, you miserable creep. You deserve to live a life full of guilt and shame. You, when I needed you most, Peter, you failed me. I didn't do that either. He also didn't, Ask him to sign a membership card. <laughs> Say, just sign right here and we're good to go. Rather, Jesus welcomed Peter. He had him join him for breakfast. He offered his presence fully to Peter as he restored him and recommissioned him. Two things that we must keep in mind as we consider sort of this idea of repentance. First is the motive for repentance. It's not only sorrow for sin, 
but also it comes from a sense of the mercy of God in Christ. It's not the slap of God, but it's the embrace of God. It's not just turning from sin. I think that's probably, if you were to just ask somebody what is repentance, that's likely gonna be the first thing that somebody says, it's turning from sin. Absolutely it is. But even more than that, it's turning to God. A God who's standing there, much like Jesus on the shore with Peter, with arms open wide, saying, come home, come home. But also notice not just the motivation, but the outcome of repentance that we see here in the text. It's not just a, it's simply a, a restoration back to the status quo, a path back to normal, the way we were before we sinned. That's not the outcome. Evading the consequences of sin, the outcome of true repentance is actually new obedience, unprecedented obedience, newness of life. True repentance is hope-inspired and unmatched grace. Through it, Jesus is restoring us, you and me, back to his image. What I love about the story of Peter, especially here in John 21, is that if you were to read through to 1 Peter in his letters, and you were to get to 1 Peter chapter 5, there's a whole chapter there where Peter directs, gives directions and instructions to elders, to leaders in the church. And if you were to read in verses one through two of chapter five, listen to what it says. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Listen to what he says in verse two. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Do you know what Peter doesn't say? He doesn't say, be fishers of men. See, Peter's a fisherman. His entire identity has been transformed. Now he's a shepherd of God's flock. He is in a totally different place post-repentance. His life has been radically transformed. He's becoming more of who God intended and designed him to be. When we practice repentance, we grow in awareness of our own sinfulness. We're open to correction, open to critique. We reject spiritual pride. We're not afraid. The person who's repenting is not afraid to be wrong. In fact, you likely anticipate that you're going to be wrong. You approach God on the basis of Christ's work alone, not on our work and production. Possess a growing comprehension that God finds our weaknesses attractive, not repulsive. That's what the repentant life looks like. And finally, what else do we see about this love of God that really strikes me in this chapter? Is that loving Jesus looks like loving Jesus' people. Love for God's people. This is the outward expression. Love for God's people is inextricably linked to love for God. 
If we are to be a people who love well, then we will be a people who love God's people well. Follower of Jesus has an expanding and deepening affection for God's people, a longing for deeper communion an openness to bear the burdens of those around him or her, a deep curiosity about other believers' personalities or particular gifts or struggles or strengths. Follower of Jesus loves God's people. Now, these two ideas, love for God and love for others, we see all throughout the Bible. I think of the most obvious place is the great commandment where Jesus commands shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And then he says, and the second is like it. Jesus himself makes the connection. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. One of the last lessons that he gives the disciples is the, the washing of their feet in the upper room. If you remember that story, a remarkable demonstration of love and service. And then at the end of that chapter, John 13, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Such an important text for the church. Jesus shows us in those few words, one, he is the model for love. He's demonstrated the look of love. It's sacrificial. It's rolling up your sleeves. It's getting on your knees, getting your hands dirty. It costs you something. It takes time and presence. You can't shop it out. Do it from a distance. It's involved with people. Two, he commands it. He models it, shows us what it looks like, and he says, now you, just like I've loved you, you love others. And third, and this is where I get excited, he models it, he commands it, and he connects it to our very purpose. If we wanna be the type of church that puts his glory on display, if we wanna be the type of church that raises a banner for Jesus in our community, if we wanna be the type of church where people can look from the outside in at us and say there's something different about those people, we'll be the type of church that loves one another well. It takes it seriously. It says, brother and sister, your pains, your burdens, your tears are my pains, are my burdens, are my tears. We'll be the type of church that says, your joys, your happinesses, your celebrations will be mine. We'll weep with one another. We'll we'll, we'll rejoice with one another. We'll be in and out of one another's homes. Our doors will be open. We'll have our arms wide open, welcoming one another into our very presence. I heard one of the most simple, most amazing prayers this morning before church. And I'm not gonna tell you who said it. The prayer was this. She said, Jesus, help us to listen to people. That was the prayer for today. Help us to listen to people. Real love listens well. We don't see one another as sort of a means to an end. We see value, beauty. We see Jesus 
in the face of our brothers and sisters. That's the type of church we need to be. That's the type of church that Jesus commanded us to be. A church that loves one another well. And when we do that, then people will look at us and Jesus himself says, they will know you're my disciples. I don't know about you, but that's the type of community I wanna be a part of. I wanna be, let me in on some of that. It's not just what you get to do, but it's also what you get to receive. If we're doing that well, we'll be the type of church that will not forget its blessedness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a wonderful quote in The Cost of Discipleship. Three words that have, I think, challenged me more than three words by a non-biblical author. These are the three words. Discipleship means joy. Discipleship means joy. I want to be the type of church that embodies that. And our joy is not contingent on our circumstances and the world around us, the ebbs and flows of culture or the trials that come our way. They're coming. It's a joy that's rooted deep down inside of us that can't be taken from us. It's a joy that comes of following Jesus. Let's be a church that loves well. You can see it clearly in the text how Jesus connects the two. Do you love me? Three times he asks. Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Jesus connects the dots. Your love for me, Peter, will necessarily translate into your love for the sheep. So as Jesus comes to us this morning, I think he's asking us the exact same question. Do you love Jesus? If you do, these three things should be, I think, probably evident in your life. Increasing affection, admiration, wonder, and appreciation, and understanding of who he is and what he's done for us in the deep places of our heart, placing him above all else. Two, regularly repenting of our sins and our need for him to forgive those sins. And three, an unexplainable love for his people. Let's let those things describe our love. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for, um, oh Lord, just your great, great love for us. We thank you that you don't leave us guessing what you think about us, but you make it abundantly clear. Lord, we just pray that in response to your love for us, Lord, that we would be a people who love you well. Help us to keep you first in our life. Place you above all else. Lord, as we consider your glory and your splendor, I pray that you would help us to, to see our sin, to be honest with ourselves, about ourselves. Lord, and just to repent humbly before you. Three, Lord, I pray that you'd give us a love that is supernatural and apart from Jesus, totally unexplainable. Help us to love each other well. 
Help us to love your image in our neighbors, whoever they are. Help us to love well. We ask these things in your name. Amen.